Hello and welcome to Country Stride, the podcast dedicated to the landscapes, people and heritage of Cumbria and the Lake District. I'm here today in the cloistered valley of Troutbeck on a very chilly February afternoon in the company of author, illustrator and our guide for today's walk, Mark Richards. Hello, Mark. Hello, David. This is an agricultural day for me. I've started off by feeding two Glossarol spot sows. Mm. Uh, and when I've finished, I've got to go back and check that they're OK and perhaps give them a little bit more uh, carrots or something just to cheer them up. So that's the farming link with your old spot pigs. We are at one of the jewels in the National Trust crown in the Lake District. We are at Town End, the historic farm in this Troutbeck Valley that was farmed for 12 generations by the same family, the Brown family. And... The house has been kept as it was in their day as an evocation of not only times past but of this continuity, this extraordinary continuity across generations. We see the Lake District full of houses and buildings of many sorts but here we've got something that tells you about the basic farming tradition of this landscape and the emergence of the more wealthy aspects of it right from the 17th century. Fascinating. We've got a fantastic guest today who's going to talk to us about the house, about its gardens and about this wider farming context here, Mark. Yes, we've got a custodian for nearly 20 years, Emma Wright, who loves and breathes this place and knows it intimately and loves it to bits. I know she's got a varied programme for us, Mark. She's going to take us around their incredible library We're going to learn about some of the recipes used for entertaining some of their neighbours here at Troutbeck. We're going to look at some of the furniture, some of the unique furniture that's in the house, carved latterly by one of the inhabitants. And we'll also, I hope, get a chance to leave the property briefly to go up onto the fell itself to learn how the house interacted with the wider landscape. So a full deep dive, Mark, into farming, heritage and how it impacted on many generations over the centuries. I know Emma's waiting for us in the kitchen, the low house of Town End. So let's go and meet her and start today's Country Stride. into the kitchen, I would gather, of Town End. Uh, the fire is blazing in the hearth. There's uh, antique timber furniture set against the wall. There's uh, pans hanging from hooks on the ceiling and a clock ticking in the background. The light is coming through the leaded light windows, giving natural light from the south that illuminates this wonderful space. And the floor is flagged dark flag floor. It's got centuries of use. It's that kind of place that has a certain permanence about it that makes you say, wow, I love this building. And somebody who loves this building specifically and is our guest today, we are honoured to welcome 
Emma Wright. Lovely to see you, Emma. It's great to be here. You're not a newbie to this place. How long have you been here? And more important, what drew you here to your career within the National Trust? I first came here nearly 20 years ago and I initially came for a six-month secondment just to help out um, as an interim arrangement and um, obviously I enjoyed it so much I couldn't leave and as I say, nearly 20 years later, I'm still here and I don't think I ever will leave until I get dragged out. (laughs) (laughs) You're a family brown by another name. I think so, yes, absolutely. (laughs) Well, we've come to this very special house. Could you describe the building itself in its essence and the family associated with it? Absolutely. So the Brown family lived at Townend and we know they were here on this site as early as 1525, probably originally in a building constructed from timber. Um, The earliest definite date we can put on the house that you're looking at today is 1650. And for us, one of the things that's really special about it is that it's that same family right through from 1525, handing it down through 12 generations right up until the 1940s when eventually the line sadly died out. And it's been an National Trust property since 1948, which is quite lovely because we're celebrating our 75th year this year. (laughs) That's one year older than me. Amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty typical of this area, the Browns were yeoman farmers. Could you describe what a yeoman farmer was? There's a particular way of owning and passing on the land in this area called customary tenure. And what it meant was that actually they were pretty independent, although they were technically tenants. And it was all wrapped up in the fact that they were expected to help defend the border with Scotland if there was a threat, which is why it's geographically very much located in this area. So after the crowns eventually came together in 1603, that became a lot less relevant. Interestingly, Scott's rake comes off the Ilbale range, hinting to that inference of connection with Scott's sneaking into this valley. Becoming middle class and uh, gaining work and influence, that was part and parcel of who the Browns were. Absolutely. And as early as the 17th century, the then George Brown started referring to himself as a gentleman. So this real sort of conscious effort of saying, actually, we think we are a cut above. We know that they were always trying to better themselves as well, whether that was through making sure that the eldest son made a really good marriage to an influential local lady, um, whether it was taking on positions of responsibility locally as well. So again, father and son in the late 17th, early 18th century, both held the position that was the high constable of of Kendall Ward, which had a lot of extra responsibilities. We've already talked about the possible invasion of the Scots, and actually Ben Brown was involved in raising the local men to go and see off the Scots in the Jacobite Rebellion in 1715. For those listeners who perhaps never been to Townend Troutbeck, could you give a little bit of a perspective on what the building looks like from the outside? We think of this as one of the finest examples of vernacular architecture in this area. It looks like a very solid house built from stone, um, covered with white render, with these enormous large cylindrical chimneys, which were both very functional for getting a good draw on the fires, but also really, I think, quite significantly about status. You know, if you've got, again, going back to the half tax, you've got lots of chimneys, it shows that you're a wealthy person. And it's very much nestled into the side of the valley here as well. So because of the, the date we're talking about here, the 17th century, it was all about taking shelter, being close to water as well. Of course, all of Troutbeck Village is built along a spring line here. Why was it rendered? 
That's a good question. A few years ago, in 2016, we had to do a big building project because we realised we got some rot in one of our significant beams that was holding the house up. So at that point, we took all of the render off and we think it was probably the first time in 150 years that the house had been naked, so to speak. And we were really interested to see what we would find underneath that. And the opinion of our building surveyor looking at the quality of the stonework was that it had always been intended that it would be rendered because it's actually really quite poor quality stonework underneath the render so although we do get these lakeland houses that are just stone where you've got this sort of poorer quality stonework it always would have been rendered and that lime it works beautifully so we've got lime render on the outside and then lime plaster and lime wash on the inside and it just allows the whole building to breathe so if you do get damp patches they just dry back out again and it all works beautifully well, thanks for that intro, Emma. That was fascinating. Uh, I believe you've got a little bit of a tour for us. Absolutely right, Mark. Yes, so we're going to start off looking at some of our main showrooms in the house here. So the downhouse, where we are at the moment, or kitchen, very functional part of a house with some beautiful furniture we can have a quick look at. Then we'll go through into the firehouse, which is our main reception room and also the oldest part of the house. And then probably finishing off in our library, because we have a fascinating library collection here, which is of national significance and something that I personally am really passionate about and then after that hopefully let's go outside and have a little bit of a walk up onto the fell and we can enjoy looking at the setting of the house the farming landscape and that more of that lovely vernacular architecture I've come to the far end of the kitchen and uh, the antique pots and pans on the ceiling absolutely rivets the attention. There's so much going on, as it were. Actually, looking back to the door I came into the house in, there are three rather intriguing awards. The Royal Agricultural Society. Now that tells you a lot about the Brown family, does it, Emma? Absolutely it does. So, of course, they were sheep farmers. That was why they were here right from the start, right up until the very end, actually. And very proud of their sheep. We've got some trophies and cups that they won locally in the local agricultural shows, Herwick Sheep Breeders Association, that kind of thing. But these ones, you can see reading across them, they actually say that this particular show took place in London in 1879. So when I'm leading guided tours with our visitors, my next question to the visitor then is, how do you think George got his sheep down to London for the show? Because it's quite a long way with your sheep. Well, the railway was open then. Oh, top marks. I knew you'd know the answer. <laughs> 1847, I think, it opened Windermere Station. That's right. So George, of course, took the sheep down to London on the train. And he did really well. He came back with these three prizes. Now, we're really fortunate as well, because also in our library collection, we've got the programme for this show that was produced afterwards that listed who all the prize winners are. So we know what these relate to, and they're all for Herdwick sheep of different ages. And George, next to them has also written next to a couple of them what the names of the sheep were too so we know that one of the prize winners was called patch and rather more grandly one of them was called the duke of connaught it's so evocative thinking about the farming history with the browns and of course while we're standing here in the kitchen in front of the fire it also sort of links through to that for me so we know that the browns would have eaten um, a lot of the mutton and actually if you come a bit closer to the fire for a second mm -hmm. i'll show you how they would have preserved it so if you stand right in front of the fire here right. and look above your head you Ooh. can see into our meat loft which is quite a surprising space isn't 
pit. I wasn't expecting that at all. Most of the room has a ceiling, which is only a, a short distance above our heads. And then in front of the fire, we've got this cavernous space, which is in fact almost part of the bedroom from upstairs. And what they would have done in days gone by, the fire itself would have been further forward with a big hood over it. So one of those really big Inglenook style hearths. The smoke would have gone straight up into this space we can see there. And you would have hung your joints of mutton in there to preserve them. And they could stay up there for two to three months at a time, particularly at this time of year, actually, because the food would be more scarce in the winter time. So you'd want to have a really good stock up. And that was called macken, the mutton once it had been smoked, like bacon but with an M. So a real delicacy, something they would have eaten a lot of in this area. Wow. And there's an interesting document in our archive which also relates to this meat loft. So when Ben Brown died in the 1740s, they made an inventory of all of his belongings to work out what the estate was worth. And of course, most of it is silver, pewter, books, furniture. That was your valuables. But it also lists the meat he had hanging in his chimney, as they describe it. And in today's money, we reckon it's the equivalent of about £700 worth, valuable enough to be mentioned on the inventory of his chattels. Now, talking about food, Emma, you've got something fascinating in your hand, which looks authentic and relates to something pertinent to food. This is a facsimile copy, so it's not the original, but it's a very good one, of um, what's called a commonplace book, which I suppose is another word for a notebook, really. A collection of recipes written by Elizabeth Burkett in 1699. I call her Elizabeth Burkett. That was her maiden name in actual fact. Of course, she became Elizabeth Brown because she married a Brown. So this is her collection of recipes from 1699. So many fascinating things about this. A large proportion of them are culinary recipes, which is, I'm sure, what you were expecting when we were talking about recipes, but also it's much more diverse than that. So she's got household recipes, things for getting stains out of your clothing. She's got a good number of recipes for dyeing linen cloth or woolen cloth, that sort of thing as well. And she's got a lot of medicines and health cures, some of which are quite shocking, really. So it's things like um, if someone has a nosebleed, you take the blood from their nose and use it to write across their forehead the words consummatum est it is completed well would you believe that so there's no charms in there then huh? well actually there is so um, on this page i'm holding up here you might just be able to make out there's the word abracadabra written in a sort of triangular format and um, what the wording actually says that if if you write the word like this and wear it around your neck it will protect you from an ague which is like a malarial fever so um all sorts of quite uh, surprising things could you Tell us something about the recipes in that wonderful common book. I suppose to start off with, it's important to know that there would have been a lot of very everyday recipes that they wouldn't have written down because they would have been passed down verbally. So, for example, there's something that we know they would have eaten a lot of every day around here at this time called clapbread, which is a giant oat cake. And that was so everyday, everyone would know how to make it so you wouldn't write it down. These recipes tend to be the things that they would have used for special occasions, perhaps if one of those people who you wanted to influence was coming for a special meal with you, or perhaps... Um, 
celebrations, so things like weddings or indeed funerals as well. There's a lovely recipe in here, which I quite enjoy making and is quite tasty, which the recipe title is to make bean cakes look as white as snow. They're called bean cakes. It's a complete misnomer because they don't contain beans of any sort. And I'll come on to that in a second. <laughs> Effectively, what it is, it's like a tiny meringue with chopped nuts inside. And then it's decorated on top with little, they look almost like sprinkles. It's sugar-coated fennel seeds or caraway seeds, so comforts. And they have a really contemporary look. Now, they were eaten to celebrate weddings. And where the word bean comes from, we think, is like reading the band of marriage so when you've had your engagement and the bands are being read you could celebrate with bean cakes a rather more poignant one is a recipe in here that Elizabeth calls little cakes you might have heard of hawkshead wigs um, so little sort of breaded buns again with caraway seeds and these were traditionally eaten at a funeral and the reason it, it is rather poignant is that we've got a written account of Elizabeth's own funeral written by her husband what he's arranged and what he's paid for everything and we know that little cakes were eaten at Elizabeth's funeral as well you mentioned about the nosebleed, which of course was completely bonkers, but are there any other rather quirky ailment solvers there? Well, there's another one that springs to mind, um, also involving blood and gore, which is always good, isn't it? So if your child has rickets, what you have to do is stand them naked in front of the fire and paint them with the blood of a bull and then wait for the blood to peel off and that will cure them of their rickets. And another one which springs to mind, which I rather like, which relates to a cure for epilepsy, is that you have to catch a live spider, wrap it in a cloth and hang it around the person's neck without them knowing and that will cure their epilepsy. Now when I was transcribing this book of course I went through all of these being heartily amused but there was a little nugget of me inside that desperately wanted to find something which I felt could have helped in some way with our present scientific knowledge and eventually I did find one and um, it was a herbal remedy using something from the garden called elecampane and that has been proved to be an antibacterial agent and she was using it in a cream for skin. Hopefully that one was a little bit more effective than some of the others. Well, we'll head off up those steps and go into another room and see a little bit more furniture perhaps. Well, I've arrived in what's a very grand space. In terms of most farmhouses, this would be deemed a, a grand space. It's called the Firehouse. It's very well lit from the west, leaded light window. And there's a fire with fire dogs and so forth, but there's no fire on at the moment. On the wall, there's muskets. There's a long rifle there. There's, I don't know, a pike or something over our head on the beam and the flag floor, of course. Uh, and a very considerable boarded table, which one can imagine it being laid out with food and lots of people, I'd imagine. Who would be sitting there, Emma? The reason we've got such a big table in this house is that we know the, the family would have sat with their servants and with their farmhands as well. And again, that's another hint, I suppose, to their status. The fact that they did have servants. We've got a record of servants being in this house from the 1600s onwards. So a nice large table there in order to accommodate everyone, but also really nice, actually, that everybody would sit together. So it's not that kind of feeling of them and us that you would have in a grander house. Surrounding us, there are some considerable wooden panels, bookshelves, and I'm really captivated by the carving of the timber work. Can you explain all what's going on? There's a kaleidoscope of things. 
There is. That's a really good observation, actually, because obviously with a house like Townend, we've got a lot of layers of history with the family having been here for so many centuries. And some of it is much older than others. So if we have a look at the bookcase in the corner of the room now, if you have a look at the top of that, you might be able to see the letters GBE on the left hand side. Mm -hmm. Right. And that stands for George Brown and his wife, Eleanor. So it's traditional to sort of do surname in the middle, raised up slightly, and then husband and wife's first initials either side that's, of it. That's 1687. You're absolutely right. The date carved next to their initials is 1687. However, we know that this was carved brand new in 1887 by the last George Brown. So he knocked 200 years off the date he was carving onto it. Now, our last George Brown um, was here mostly in Victorian times. He died in 1914. And he was pretty fortunate that by the time he came to own the farm and the house, the family had actually done pretty well for themselves. They were in a very comfortable um, financial position. What that meant for him was he was able to retire from physically, practically running the farm at the age of 45. And he carried on living here until he died at the age of 80. So with all this free time on his hands, um, he was able to pursue his hobbies, which included many various things, a lot of local positions on committees and things like that. He was also a very keen gardener, but his real love and passion was furniture making and wood carving. And the reason we know about this bookcase is because we have the design drawing that he did for it in our archive. All of the furniture in here is oak, but it's very dark because they would use traditional methods to darken it, sometimes things like ox's blood. Um, we've got four shelves of books and then a large cupboard at the bottom. It's rather nice. I often find um, visitors peering at the titles. You might be able to read some of them. Mm -hmm. Again, it evokes much of the Browns because you've got things like Burke's Peerage on there. So we've got books, again, about status. Um, in the carving itself, it's quite grand. And then some nice details with ivy leaves and sort of interwoven patterns as well down the sides. And then to the left-hand side, there's this quite narrow and equally ornately engraved or carved panelling uh, clock. Absolutely. In, in fact, we've got a pair of them. So either side of the archway there. And these do attract a lot of attention, particularly the one to the left-hand side, which almost looks like a totem pole. If you can see the figures, if we go a bit closer there, you know, this isn't what you would traditionally expect to see in a Westmoreland farmhouse, is it? It's really very, very different. And people say, where did he get his inspiration? The honest answer is we don't know, and it could be a variety of places. But it's rather lovely that it does also appear to still have some local hints as well. So the headdress of this sort of tribal-looking figure has got something which appears to be a snake. Now, you're maybe familiar with Westmoreland carving. You often have a motif of the Midgard worm from Norse mythology. He often crops up on the corners of and things like that, this curved worm. So maybe it's a George Brown combination of something completely exotic, but maybe there's a Midgard worm has snuck in there as well. Alluding to this wonderful carving, which is Victorian, surely there's some really old material in here that you can draw my attention to. This room is the oldest part of the house. When it was first built, we think it would have been just this one room with a loft upstairs for communal sleeping area and maybe a ladder in one corner. So that's, really... That's why it's called the fire house. Yeah, absolutely. It was the extent of the house. And also you kept your fire in here all day, all night. It never went out. It was the real heart of the household. 
as I say, it was the oldest part of the house. Certainly, we think rebuilt in stone in 1650. Now, we used to say it was slightly earlier than that, but I mentioned we did a big building project where we had to remove some rotten timber. Now, that rotten timber was the beams that run across these three big windows you were admiring earlier. Now, what that gave us the opportunity to do was to invite in a dendrochronologist to analyse the rotten timber that we took out. He came back to us and said, I can tell you that this tree was cut down in the spring of 1650, which just blew my mind. Not even just 1650, but the spring of 1650. So we know that that's when this room was rebuilt. What we've got on the other side of the room, if you come over here, is a lovely piece of traditional furniture. So this is what we would call a court cupboard or press cupboard. And I'm sure you have seen them in numerous Westmoreland farmhouses. Every house would have one. It goes up to the top of the panelling there. I suppose it's maybe about five feet tall. We've got these sort of four cupboards, two smaller ones at the top, two larger ones at the bottom. But it looks like it only sticks out of the wall by about six inches or so. In fact, of course, it's recessed right back into the wall. And with this being the oldest part of the house, they are very wide walls here. So it goes right back built into the house. What you would store in it, in the large cupboards at the bottom, you store your stacks of clap bread, these oat cakes that we talked about when we were in the downhouse. And then the smaller cupboards at the top would be where you would store things like your pewter and your silverware, your more valuable tableware. Now, it's also got some rather lovely designs on the carving here. So as well as having, again, traditional leaf motifs, if you look at the lower cupboards, each cupboard has four panels on it and each panel is a coat of arms. The one you're admiring there, top left-hand corner mark, you'll see a double-headed eagle. And that was the coat of arms that the Brown family decided to adopt in 1703. Wow. Um, they weren't, strictly speaking, entitled to bear arms in the technical sense, but of course, course that didn't stop them and having done some research about it recently one of our volunteers has found that in actual fact the double-headed eagle is a brown coat of arms albeit not our brown coat of arms so they'd obviously done their research too how would they have used this space in the social sense throughout the ages well, certainly the firehouse here would have been their main space for entertaining. And we've talked about how keen they were to advance socially and how it would be about inviting the right people round for dinners and things like that. But in reality, I think the family here in the 17th century would have been working very hard from dawn till dusk. And everything in the house would have been so much more laborious back then, even just domestic jobs like doing the washing and, and things like that. And although we do know they had servants, that certainly the ladies of the house would still have been very very busy with a lot of those sorts of tasks or things like making preserves that kind of thing. Moving to the Victorian times things changed radically really. We've already talked a little bit about our last George Brown and how he was able to retire early so I suppose by that point the Browns would have had more the sort of thing that we would think of now as leisure time to enjoy their pursuits whether that is um, reading or gardening or cooking as more of a hobby so um, they definitely had a little bit more time. Last George's wife Margaret actually kept a diary which is rather charming so we can see things like their social engagements in Troutbeck as well they'd be going down to a dance at the institute or going over to Howe Farm for an evening or, or things like that which is rather lovely you get this lovely picture of a much richer social life. Now you've talked about books and reading I believe you've got to take us into the library is it through this door here? That's right, lead on. Ooh. 
coming into this cozy little interior space with a wonderfully creaky floor. And uh, as a bureau, there's a gallery of uh, books on one wall. There's a fireplace and a little alcove window looking out over the trout bank. Quite a low ceiling. It's a very cozy space, a very conducive space. And this is the library, but it's more than that, isn't it? The collection of books that we have here are absolutely of national significance. Um, they date from the mid-16th century right through to the 1940s. We've got around 1,500 books in the house altogether and around 50 of them are entirely unique. That is, we have got the only known surviving copies of those books. And to put that in context, the National Trust owns a lot of very fancy stately home libraries and, and many of those have one or two unique books. So for us to have more than 50 is a staggering number. It's a really diverse collection, including religious books, books about farming, travel, plays, novels, poetry, recipes, gardening. We know that most of them have been used because they've got things like corners turned over, things written in them, food stains. There was even one our conservator found that had got a splash of mud, a horsehair and some grass seeds that had just been closed up inside it. So a collection that has been treasured and loved and used and looked after. We've also got some fascinating archive documents which link to how the books were used. So things like lists of which books were lent out to neighbours, which is good because it means we know which were the really popular ones, and lists of book sales that were happening right here in Troutbeck Village centuries ago and only a few years after the first recorded book sales in London. So we know there was a really vibrant culture for buying and selling books. I've got all these books in this room, really precious books, of course, but you've laid out three specific ones. Uh, there's a thicker, dark one, uh, a small book, and there's one that's got the title on it, Gates Shepherd's Guide. Now, can you explain them to me? Absolutely. So I chose these three books because I think they tell us something about the Browns and the sort of people they were. So if we start with the older looking large one with a leather binding on. I love the title of this book. So if I just ease it open, you'll see on the title page there, it says A Way to Get Wealth. And this was published in London in 1648. And I just love that. The Browns here, we've talked about how they were all about social climbing and, you know, they were quite um, entrepreneurs as well in how they were running their farming business. So the fact that they have this book, A Way to Get Wealth, and I just think, what a great title. That would still sell nowadays, surely. <laughs> what it actually says on the title page is a way to get wealth containing five principal vocations or callings in which every good husband or housewife may lawfully employ themselves. And the sorts of thing it includes are the nature's ordering, curing, breeding, choice, use and feeding of all sorts of cattle, fowl, fit for the service of man. And uh, a few other things as well about uh, malting and brewing and husbanding and orchards, all sorts of things like that. Oh, the Browns were very good at all those things. They were, they were. And what they were also good at was spotting a commercial opportunity as things were changing. They were very good at adapting what their farming business effectively was doing. I've got another one. This was the smaller book that you'd seen. And this is rather charming. So this is actually a collection of chapbooks um, within one volume. So what is a chapbook, you might be thinking? Yeah. Chapbooks were sold from door to door by a chapman. And they often are only about eight or 12 pages long. They wouldn't have had a proper binding on. So we would think of them more like a pamphlet, really. The Browns have bound this into this book themselves. Very cheaply produced, often have quite a crude woodcut style illustration, sometimes reusing the same illustration for several different stories. 
and um, often the content is quite uh, bawdy or entertaining or scandalous in some way. So the one I'm holding, I've picked out my favourite, and this was published in Newcastle in 1770, and this one is called The Crafty Chambermaid's Garland, a garland being a story, effectively. If it's not too bawdy for our listeners, could you give us a little excerpt? Absolutely, because um, they always do a potted version of the plot on the title page. So if I read that to you, it says, The crafty chambermaid's garland in three parts. Part one, how the young merchant fell in love with his mother's chambermaid. Part two, how they met in a grove where the young merchant attempted her chastity. And part three, how the crafty chambermaid outwitted the merchant by putting an old bunter to her bed, which so affrighted him that he ran down the stairs and alarmed the family, concluding with their happy marriage and other things of note. Now, I love reading that out, but inevitably a question arises, which is what is a bunter? Because it's not a word that we use anymore. So if you read through the full text, um, which is all written in rhyme, incidentally, it becomes clear. So what it says is, there was an old bunter that had but one eye, no teeth in her head and her nose all awry, a dirty old devil as ever I did see, I'll choose her, the merchant's bedfellow, to be. So effectively, she gets this toothless old woman to lie in her bed pretending to be her and to give him a terrible shock. A bit like me at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> my tooth fell off last week. Now, the third book you've got, which has Gates Shepherd's Guide on the front, I think I've heard about this one, and it's got smit marks and lug marks in it. I love this one because it's a really key farming text for anyone round here. So it's Gates Shepherd's Guide, published locally in 1879, and it's a guide to all of the smit marks and lug marks across the whole of Westmoreland, Cumberland and Lancashire. So you can see I've opened it on a particularly pertinent page for us, uh-huh. which is the page that relates to Troutbeck, Westmoreland. So oh, yes. um, you can see there we've got six, illustrations of um, the same sheep and then the individual marks marked on. So we've got the top one there is our George Brown of Townend. Lug marks and smit marks, what are they? With the Herdwick sheep, they roam freely, but hopefully keep to their home heath or the area that they're brought up on. Um, But obviously it's really important to identify which sheep belongs to which farm, um, whether they go astray or indeed where they gather them in and get all of the sheep together. So this is the sort of unique identifiers, I suppose, for each farmer. It shows you the marks that are sort of painted on the side of the sheep there with the smit. You've got the B for brown, as you highlighted. And then the lug marks are cut into the ears. Lug is the Viking for law. They were obliged to do this. Now, what you've shown to me there is something very special. I immediately respond to that because B is brown and below it is F, Mm -hmm. forest. That's answered a question I wanted to know. I went up onto Wansfell Pike and there's a series of transitions in the wall mm-hmm. and one of them's got B on and the other's got an F on it. Oh. So it's got the forest. Fabulous. You've answered the question. <laughs> it was a question I was going to ask and it's in this Gates Shepherd's Guide. How fabulous. And where were the forests? Which farm was that? Low House. Low says. House. Well, there you are. Because when they enclosed the common, they had only one year in which to enclose it and they had teams for each farm busy doing lengths in a hurry. Ah. So the forests would have been doing it next to the Browns. Brilliant. 
while Emma, you've given us a real flavour for the richness of this interior, the antiquity of it, but also the humanity of this space is amazing. I think we ought to pop outside. You perhaps can describe the garden space and uh, what that represents in context of the house. Interesting, coming out into the garden, there's a gravelly area here, but there's also uh, beds, flower beds, there's uh, snowdrops up the bank, winter dormancy here, but I believe this is a rich garden florally, and the setting is fascinating, with yew trees growing on either flank, uh, they are distinctive of this setting. Although the yew trees are now very large, you'll see that they're sort of growing in a line. So there is a question as to whether they were actually planted as a hedge, which has got uh, slightly out of control. But again, we've got a, a document in the archives which shows when they were planted in the 1730s, which is just incredible to sort of understand that level of detail. And the last George Brown, he was noted for his love of gardening. Absolutely. So it was a, a real passion for him, a hobby, and he had some wonderfully eccentric habits. So he really enjoyed planting phloxes and he had 28 varieties of them planted in alphabetical order, which I just think is charming. He kept a gardening diary and would write uh, what he'd planted, what had worked well, what hadn't worked well. Um, he was well known locally as well, so people would bring him things to try, which is rather sweet as well. Yeah. So which plants really took on and what were the problems in this setting? We know that he had problems with rose bay, willow herb um, another problem which we know he struggled with was the deer getting in and eating things which is something that unfortunately still frustrates us to an extent today particularly the roses and facing us across the road is the most wonderful bank barn that uh, could ever be conceived with a gallery a ramp gabled buttressing ends and it's quite extensive it's not just a little compact building it's got wooden shutters and slits ventilating the different uh, stories of the barn so it's just an authentic statement of a Westmoreland bank barn it's a remarkable building it's fabulous, isn't it? I love it. It's a listed building in its own right. And if you look at the footprint on a map, it's actually larger than the house, which I think tells you a lot about the Browns and how important farming was to them. So the left-hand side with the lovely spinning gallery, which you mentioned, is the oldest part of the building, and that dates from 1666. And then the extension to the right-hand side was added in the 18th century when they needed more storage for horse-drawn vehicles and that side of things. And of course, with the bank barn, you've got the advantage of the natural slope of the land meaning that from the side we're looking at you've got a slope upwards into the upper area where you could use for storage and of course the animals can access the lower area from the field side to get in and shelter underneath. How effectively would the building be used? The storage for hay and such like would be upstairs and that has the added advantage of, of helping to keep it dry because the heat from the animals overwintering downstairs would rise up through and help keep that dry. We've got storage for horse-drawn vehicles vehicles and horses is more to the right hand side there's even um, dog kennels included in it and also some accommodation for extra 
farmhands who would, particularly at certain seasonal times, you would need to swell your numbers when they were clipping or doing things like that. Well, we've really enjoyed the house and the bank barn opposite, but to really appreciate the whole setting, we do need Emma to get up onto the fell above. There is a, a bench that you love, and it's one I know. I think we'll head for it and get a context. Wow, that was delightful. We wandered along the road from Town End southwards and we've come up a lovely little gravel track, a lane, a lolin, which rises up and we've come to Robin Lane, which is the very popular little walker's thoroughfare that links Troutbeck itself and the institute where there's a cafe and it leads right through to Skelgill Woods and down into Ambleside. And it's a very popular walk and quite understandably so. Uh, from this bench, it's got a, a dedication to Dick and Kathleen Johnson, who loved the lakes. From here, I'm able to look to the southwest, down Windermere, which today has a pinky bright glow. Uh, the cloud level is just above Gummer's Howe on the left and to the right is Clare Heights. You're far removed from traffic. It's an idyllic spot. But what it gives us is a foreground view down onto pastures enclosed with lovely hoary walls of local stone. And this is the landscape that the Browns and their neighbours will have farmed with their sheep and the sheep there now. Can you tell us a little bit more, Emma, about the Browns' relationship with this landscape? Absolutely. So we've talked about how the Browns were farming and that's what they were doing here in Troutbeck. And they owned land quite close to the house and vast swathes going up one spell as well. And even some quite high land going right up towards the Kirkston Pass, a patchwork of lands that they'd accumulated via various means, sometimes through marriage, for example. Um, although sheep farming was always their core business, if you will, they definitely were farming cattle at different times too. Um, they had some crops, so things like oats and barley which would be both for the family um, and fodder extra fodder for the animals as well and then at different times they saw opportunities like having coppiced oak woodland and sending the bark for tanning and then later on even charcoal for the furnace iron industry so again it all links back to the fact they were very astute businessmen now, the interesting thing about this seti, of course, Emma, are these lanes, outgangs. And strictly, this is what they are. They're way out from the community where individual farmers would use these common ways to drove their sheep and cattle up onto the allotments that they had rights to. And even to the hundreds, you've got hundreds road, you've got Robin Lane here, arterial access corridors that um, allow lots of cattle and sheep to mingle into the greater landscape. One of the elements of this is the Hundreds Road, which leads up onto that allotment of land above the village. I'm rather intrigued by the use of the term hundreds. Yes, so it was a form of communal pasturing, basically, and the Browns had a right to have animals on the lowest hundred in this area, but it didn't always go smoothly with their neighbours, because in 1686, George Brown was taken to task about the fact that some of the neighbours felt that the Browns were overstocking the hundreds, so um, they had a little bit of a disagreement about that. Well, the light is changing all the time. It's a early February Monday, actually. Uh, the cloud is sort of blanketed above us, but we're going to make our way down Robin Lane towards Town End and think about the end of the dynasty of the Browns and, uh, and perhaps uh, pick up a little bit on the National Trust.
one of the lovely things about coming down Robin Lane towards the Institute is you get this fabulous view up the valley towards Troutbeck Tongue to the Three Sisters, as uh, I often call them, Frosick, Ilbel and Yoke. Very distinctive hills that graciously overlook the upper echelons of the valley beyond the village. And this probably ties us in a little bit with the tail end of the Brown dynasty and Beatrix Potter, for whom Park Farm had an immense emotional connection. She loved that Herdwick flock there and she put a lot of effort and money and time into that farm. Everybody associates her, of course, with Sorry, but Park Farm was very central to her heart and this valley. And, of course, she knew the last George Brown. Is that right, Emma? Yeah, absolutely. So we know that Beatrix definitely visited the Browns at Town End because she wrote a letter where she mentions George's carving work and actually she wasn't very impressed. What she said was, Alas, old Miss Brown's father was an enthusiastic carver in the bad Victorian days when amateurs improved old oak. So I don't think she was very impressed at what George had been doing to the furniture. And you have another quote of Beatrix's about the Tribeck Valley. Absolutely. So she wrote in 1942, I love to wander on the Troutbeck Fell. Sometimes I had with me an old sheepdog. More often I went alone, but never lonely. There was company of gentle sheep and wildflowers and singing waters. So you really get that sense, like you said, that she loved the place. Absolutely. You brought us forward to the 1940s and this is the tail end of the connection of the Browns to Town End and it's transitioned to the ownership of the National Trust. How does that all come together? Absolutely right. So our last George Brown sadly died in 1914. Now he'd had only three daughters, which is why he was the last George. And sadly for him, not one of his daughters married or had any children of their own. So Clara Brown, his middle daughter, was the last of those to live here. And then she died ultimately in 1943. Now at that point, there were no further descendants for the house to go to. So she tried her best in the sense that she left everything to a second cousin who'd emigrated to New Zealand. He came back in the war. He was already quite old and I think it must have been a very difficult time and they decided they didn't want to take on 800 acres of Troutbeck sheep farm so he put it up for sale. It was purchased by a landowner who lived locally, Oswald Headley, uh, but sadly he died quite soon after he'd bought it and at that point his wife, Mrs Headley, gave it to the UK government in part payment of their death duties and the government handed it to the National Trust in 1947 and it opened for our first visitors in 1948, which is why it's so lovely that this year we're celebrating 75 years of welcoming visitors to Townend. And it's a tremendous honour for Countryside to be able to share the elation of this magical place. It might get thousands of people, but boy, when they do come here, what joy. We sort of describe ourselves as a bit of a hidden gem, really, because it often takes people quite a long time to get round to visiting Town End, but inevitably we tend to get such lovely feedback from them when they do visit. They really share our love and joy of the property. Um, so for us at the moment, we're just finishing off our conservation work and then we're reopening to visitors from the end of March, Tuesday to Friday. So um, we'd really welcome any of your listeners who will be keen to come and find out more. It's been an absolutely thorough delight to share your company and your genuine passion, Emma. I hope more people will come this year than ever and celebrate something that is an integral part of this wonderful landscape.
journey's end and it's uh, early evening now mark it's pretty cold out guys another cold spell we're back in the car park at town end after a highly enjoyable look around a really wonderful old house i hadn't been in before mark had you i had actually you had it's, it's probably 10 years all right uh, it's still as old as it was then you know <laughs> i loved it emma was such an enthusiast and she's so full of the joy of the place I really enjoyed it. Uh, lovely to see those old books in the library and know how they lent them out to the locals, you know, almost running their own little library here in parallel with the Institute, which I believe also uh, ran a library at that time as well. The Institute, incidentally, is the building above what is now called the Old Post Office Cafe. It's good. I've been using it a lot on the research of our Ambleside walking companion. Anything that really leapt out from today for you, Mark? Looking in the Gates Shepherd's Guide, it mm. showed the smit marks and the lug marks distinctive of the Brown family. But adjacent to it was the forests of Low House. Yeah. And having been on the top of One's Fell and found the wall transition with an F and a B, yeah. I've solved the problem. You were puzzled by it. Yes, I've got the answer. Right, we're on episode... 97. For 96 previous episodes, www.countrystride.co.uk. We are on social media. Facebook and Twitter at Countrystride1. And we should mention we've gone uh, slightly viral this week on Twitter, Mark. You put up a picture of what turns out to be a water gate at the outgang in Scandale. Asked the question, does anybody know what this is called? And it reached 352,000 impressions. This answered a little query that both of us had for a little while. I had asked you very early on during the research of The Walking Companion what you called the channel in a wall that allows water to drain under or through a dry stone wall. And we didn't quite know what it was called, did we? So we put it up. And the good folk of Twitter, including the person who originally answered it, I think it's one of your friends. Possibly. Yes, from California. Yeah, it's called a water gate, or of course, locals would call it a water yacht. Water smoot was another one that came up. Yes, although that's a slightly different thing, I think. Yes. That's when there's not much of a gap, is there, really? No, somebody came it's up much with a, lower. a gill grill. A gill grill <laughs> was, was very good, yeah. Yeah, that was, that was a good one. So you can follow us on Twitter if you would like to contribute to that um, long-running thread. Uh, if you'd like to support us, you like what we do, you'd like us to continue these as we approach number 100, um, you can do so in one of three ways. You can buy our guidebooks, our series of guidebooks, walks in the Lake District with a country stride feel, and you can browse them at www.countrystride.co.uk. The second thing you can do is mention us to friends and family. The more people who listen, the higher we climb those algorithms. Thirdly, we are on Patreon. Patreon is a service which allows you to donate to us for as little as £2 a month, which is the cost of what, Mark? I would think for £2 you could get a nice little cake from the old post office cafe in the Institute in Troutbeck. That'd be fair enough. Next up, I'm not quite sure what we're doing, but we have got some really lovely podcasts in the next two or three uh, on our lead up to the Big 100, and 100 will also be great fun. But that's us, Mark, from today. You're off to feed your pigs, of course. <laughs> good night to your pigs from me, and goodbye from us at Country Stride. Until next time. <laughs>